Hello, I'm Barbara Mayer from The Open University. Today we're here to discuss the future of English in an increasingly globalised world. What are the current issues associated with English and how these are likely to develop? With me in the studio are three linguists with different interests in the English language. Sue Wright is Director of the Centre for European and International Studies Research at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Her interests lie in the role of English alongside other languages in the European Union. John Gray works in the Cass School of Education at the University of East London and he's interested in the industries which promote and sustain the dissemination of English globally and particularly in the textbooks used in the teaching of English. Tope Omonyi is Director of the Centre for Research in English Language and Linguistics at Roehampton University, which is also Greater London. His interests have to do with the links between English and indigenous languages and development issues in sub-Saharan Africa. Tope is also a published poet. Finally, on the phone from Hong Kong, we have Andy Kirkpatrick. Andy directs the Research Centre for Language Education and Acquisition in Multilingual Societies at the Hong Kong Institute of Education. Welcome to you all. So let's start by looking at the role that English plays in the parts of the world with which you're each familiar. What do you see as the main emerging issues? Andy. I think what is happening very much in Asia, and I guess also in Europe, that English is actually now a multilingual language spoken by many more second language speakers who've learnt it as an additional language than by native speakers. This is certainly true in Asia. It's the sole working language of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, for example. So that means, it seems to me anyway, that we need to look much more closely at English as a multilingual language and start using multilingual models in, in the sense that people who are multilinguals who use English are actually the, the great majority of people who are using it. So that starts to chip away, I guess, at the privileged position of American or British English in that context, anyway. What I find so interesting about this is that, in a sense, it's post-national. You have in uh, the nation-state era the codification, the standardization of the language, and then there's a very purist attitude towards it. It's set in stone. It's, it's taught as a system. And now... It's a change of mindset, and that's why it's so difficult for teachers to accept that there are going to be lots of different Englishes and that we can use these. And as long as they remain fairly intercomprehensible, that's not a problem because it allows appropriation, it, allows, it takes away this idea of domination from one language, one nation state. Sue talked about post-national, a post-Anglophone world, where people are using English without really any reference to the traditional bases of English, whether that be the United States or Britain. So Cambodian, which, as everybody will know, was a French colony and then had Russian influence and so forth, people are all learning English there, but they're not learning English necessarily to communicate with Americans. Actually, it's Australians more than anybody else who are Anglophones there. But they're using it to be as, because they want to be part of ASEAN. They want to be part of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and they want to be part of APEC. So it's a kind of quite significant shift in that sense, I think. John, what's your experience? 
in my research, one of the things that I did was I talked to a lot of teachers working in, in Spain. They were mainly Catalan and Spanish teachers and then expat British, Irish and American teachers working there. And one of the things that they complained about in their interviews was the way in which the materials that they were using, global materials designed um, for use in the, in, in the global marketplace, relied very narrowly on a, on a, relied on a narrow range of, of, of accents. And the argument that they made to me was that as English had become increasingly plural, that there was a need for a much wider range of accents from the outer and the expanding circles to be included on the listening materials, which I thought was a very interesting thing um, to see practising teachers saying that that needed to be included in the materials. Um, so I think um, there may be... Uh, the attitudes towards accents may actually be changing, I think. There's an interesting uh, program at, uh, in Vladivostok, in the Far Eastern University there, in, in the eastern coast of Russia, where they teach English by using materials of Koreans, Japanese and Chinese-speaking English, because those are the people they, they use English with. So that's an example, I think, of, of where things are heading. So there aren't very many native speakers in their listening materials at all. They're Chinese, Koreans and Japanese. So, Andy, what role do you think English should play in education more generally? Well, the, the language is crucial in education for a whole range of reasons. And why English is so important here is we're, we're seeing parents in particular wanting their children to learn English because they want them to participate in the great modernisation, internationalisation of our time. And I think we really do have to try and work out how we can get English... How can we get it operating in a complementary way in language education policy with local languages and national languages? I think that is the fundamental challenge we all face. Tope? English in the school system is a kind of a gatekeeper. That policy of, of English official instruction and as a subject becomes a gatekeeping tool in, in the school system. For example, you couldn't go on to universities in Nigeria without a credit level pass in English language. So you could score your, your A star in physics, chemistry, and biology, but without the credit level pass in English, you can't go on to university. My own feeling is that there's far too much English too early, especially in the primary curriculum, and it's getting, there's more and more English coming in earlier and earlier. And the combination of learning English and the national language is meaning that most kids don't get a chance for mother tongue education at all. And local languages are under severe threat. But also, I think, the learning taking place by the kids is also nothing like as uh, proficient as it would be if they were using their mother tongue. So it's a lose-lose situation, really. Can I just pick up on something that Andy just said there, which I think resonates very much with things seen from my perspective as well, thinking about the industries promoting the global spread of English. One thing that I'm concerned about is, for example, monolingual methodologies being exported from the centre to the rest of the world. And I think the neglect of the mother tongues and their use in the teaching of English, for example, is something that I see as, as, as pernicious and, and dangerous, actually. And I think we need to be thinking more about a bilingual approach to the teaching of languages. Well, I couldn't agree more with that, if I may just come in, because uh, that's exactly what we're trying to promote here, is, is using the multilingual resources that teachers, the local teachers and the kids here have. And this is very interesting, because you, you seem to be suggesting that English can be paired with... Um, 
the you call it the mother tongue. So what is over is the family language, the first language, the local language, and then that squeezes the national language, and that's what I find very interesting because it was the national language in the past that was the language that eclipsed the smaller languages. Now, will there be room for English and local language? Those two might pair together more easily in bilingualism. The national language and another language. I'm glad that we we are actually separating the languages from from makers of policy and 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 ex- executors of policy, and the way that we tend to represent the English language is that it is the agent or the agency of of these problems. But as a matter of fact, there are people who are making these policies and uh, and putting them in place. So there's a difference between between those two. To take on uh, Sue's point on um, national identity and national languages, I think it's a, a little more problematic for uh, post-colonial Africa, where the issue of a national language is, is not so simple and straightforward. Uh, there are about 400 languages in Nigeria, for instance. I can give you two examples of Asia, so sort of picking up what Sue was saying and which languages should work together. What is happening here is that the national language, let's say Bahasa Indonesia in Indonesia and Pudonghua Mandarin in China... They've become national languages. And then the combination of teaching the national language with English from primary school is really presenting a huge threat on the local languages. So what we're trying to look at is how can you combine the national and local language in primary school and allow English to come in later in secondary, arguing that there's plenty of time to learn English later, but it's very difficult to persuade parents and policymakers of that, of course. So, that, so that's the big issue, really. I want to say that in, in connection with uh, Andy's last point there, uh, the problems that parents are having, being convinced about the model that you're presenting them, might have to do with their perception of how those who are making these policies are positioning themselves vis-à-vis the, the policies that they're making. If you put a policy in place, but your kids are sent out to the United Kingdom, to the United States, to go to school and get English medium education, then it's difficult for you to sell a policy which is promoting indigenous languages in in, in Beijing. It's a question of cultural capital. I mean, people will want the best for their children. The languages that will... A repertoire of languages that will give them the maximum life chances, don't they? But I just wanted to say that, that if, if local languages, whatever they are, are, are allowed space in the classroom, they are in a way being validated in a very important domain, which is the school. And I think that people, if they see this happening, that this is that there is this multilingual environment for, for the learning of, let's say, English or whatever, that that in a way serves to link those indigenous languages. I think that by allowing local languages into the classroom, they are associated with the pen and they are validated and, and given a legitimacy um, in, in that way. Andy? Well, I, I also just want to go back to what Sue was saying, and that is that w- what we're finding here, I don't know whether, and I don't think this happens in Europe, but it certainly is happening in Asia, that people are actually, who can afford it, are choosing to send their children to English medium schools at the expense of literacy and fluency, even in their own language. This is the national language. So in Hong Kong, for example, a lot of the English school foundation schools, which are set up for expatriates, are actually now populated by the children of locals, and they're learning through English. So their level of Chinese literacy is actually dropping. And that seems remarkable, doesn't it, when you think of the possible cultural capital and linguistic capital that could be offered by Chinese in the next 20, 30 years. Okay, thanks, everyone. 
Can we at this point perhaps move on to talk about any other fields in which you feel English is a contentious issue? Tope. I, I want to mention the Nigerian case where, for example, both in health and in law, insistence on English language as, as the official language of business, as a matter of fact, compromises and, and also undermines the, the human rights of, of people. I, I recall now, and this is anecdotal, um, the case of, of somebody who was being tried in a court of law for, for murder, and at the point where the judge sentenced him to death by hanging, he didn't speak English, uh, and so he turned to the person beside him and said, which is Yoruba for, please, what are they talking about? But see, the moment before that, his life had just been terminated by that statement in English. So people's human rights are being undermined, you know, um, by this official language thing. And that's, that's in, in legal. With the problems of HIV AIDS, we also know that the places where humongous success has been registered or recorded across Africa have been those places where intervention has been in the medium of the indigenous languages rather than in the official languages. There's a, an, another issue, and I very much like also Sue's uh, comment on this and the difference between Asia and uh, the European Union with English as being the only sole official working language of ASEAN means that what is happening very often is that people whose English isn't very good, of course, are hugely disadvantaged at ASEAN meetings. And secondly, that then countries are sending people who happen to have good English to these meetings rather than be expert in the field. Now, can you imagine in Europe that there was only one language in the European Union? What are there? There are 23 or something. So Sue, I'd be very well, interested to know if what, I can, yes. what Sue has to say about it. Well, I, I did a field work there in 1996 and 2006, and things changed pretty rapidly over those 10 years. And in 2006, I can tell you that a MEP that didn't have some English was limited in his effect or her effectiveness in, in the parliament because obviously things are interpreted in formal meetings. There are translations of the main papers, but that's not how an institution works. An institution works with people meeting at lunch, meeting in the corridor, meeting in the loo, talking. If you can't do that, then you rely on your gatekeeper, your assistant, who is your, the, the person who speaks the lingua franca of the institution, and that is more and more English now. So we have a claim that it's multilingual, but that isn't actually true. That's not what actually happens. And we can understand that. I mean, you, working in 23 languages is impossible. The number of interpreters that you need in the room is just enormous. So we've got all the problems of relay interpreting and loss of uh, meaning and all sorts of things. So. Well, it, it is one of the things ASEAN, the ASEAN Secretariat always says, or doesn't always say, but often mentions, that their, their interpreting translation budget is zero. Mm. Uh, quite significantly different. And at least it's, it's honest. You know, if you don't speak English, you won't manage this. Whereas in the uh, European Parliament, there is this fiction that you will get by if you just have Estonian or whatever, you know. So how do we think these things might have changed in, say, 20 years' time? I uh, was listening to CNN news last, last night and um, gathered that China has just unveiled in Beijing what they call 
channel one a supercomputer which which has uh, the the capability of processing uh, 2.5 quadrillion calculations in one second and it, and that discovery is uh, supersedes the pre-existing american supercomputer and and that got me thinking about this this whole tension between putonghua mandarin and and the english language uh, in terms of global economy and global politics 2025 years from from now and my my thinking is and this is only very tentative and I'm um, still thinking about it my thinking is I don't think a Putonghua Mandarin is going to be uh, any kind of serious threat to the English language because you have a region of the world because of the historical trajectory that has brought them to where they are. I sense that beyond 20 years, 50 years if not more, all the nations of Africa will still be as entrapped or as involved or as linked or connected to the English language as, as they are now. And so even though the Chinese government is being putting together uh, what you call the Confucius Institute, which is the equivalent, as I see it, the equivalent of the British Council across Africa, and they're buying more into the African economy, I don't see the uptake on Man- Putonghua Mandarin amongst Africans to be going in the same direction. I understand what you're saying, but I do think we need to be quite careful. Um, I think it was William Cage in 1986 Uh, wrote that uh, Russian was the other super language and that access to uh, science and technology came through the two super languages, Russian and English. Then in five years, Russian had disappeared more or less from the education systems in Central and Eastern Europe. And uh, we can see how quickly things can change. And we have to remember that language is so closely associated with power, lingua franca's closely associated with power. And the other thing I would say about a lingua franca is it's not like the language that you learn in the home. You don't have this effective um, relationship with it. You can change your lingua franca quite easily. It doesn't hurt you in the same way that changing your mother tongue. You know, it, it can be in the education system two or three generations and you've changed it. It's not quite the same. So I think we have to be a bit careful about thinking that we're at the end of history. We're not. I don't think that English is the last lingua franca. Totally. I I agree with you, absolutely. We have to be extremely careful about that. Uh, But you see, with the the African context that I'm talking about, and this this is a dire, dire problem, you know, that we're having to deal with. When you have a nation that has 400 indigenous languages there, and then the myth of English as the language of unity... That's that's where I'm coming from. I don't foresee in Nigeria as successful as it is in terms of the natural resources that it has and, and, and its political status on the African continent. I don't foresee the uh, the change of policy to, to Hausa, to Yoruba, to any of the indigenous languages that would not entail political problems, you know, crisis. And that's what sustains English. English thrives on that fear of the other within the African continent. And, of course, its role as the national language. Andy? I'm sure Tope would agree that despite tremendous attempts by various people to establish an African language, even as a lingua franca in Africa, it has been uh, characterised by failure, basically, and English remains. What's happening in China, interestingly, in higher education, and this tends to be linked to the internationalisation of education, 
is that there are actually more and more English medium courses being taught, especially at postgraduate level, in mainland Chinese universities. Now, that's a tendency I think you can see happening everywhere because people want to internationalize education. Internationalization almost always actually means anglicization in terms of medium of instruction and in the, and in the dissemination of knowledge and publication. So there are huge pressures at the, the high levels here for English. And many universities, I know in, in the Nordic countries, they've introduced bilingual policies in order to revitalize local languages as languages of scholarship. That is not happening really very much in Asia. And I think Asian universities are going to have to look very, very carefully at developing bilingual policies, getting the idea of parallel languages, not more complementary languages. Otherwise, I, you can see English becoming completely dominant in that field. John? From my perspective, looking at the, at the industries, like, for example, the publishing industry, I think that the publishers are, I think, going to have to respond to the massive discontent that there is um, among teachers with regard to, for example, the notion of, of the global textbook or the global course book. I think the, the one-size-fits-all sort of policy that's been in operation there for the last... 30 years or so, I think is, is coming to the end of its, its life. And I think materials are going to have to be much, much more context sensitive. I have published a book of poetry and have published uh, several poems of, of, of some poetry in, in journals in Asia, in, in Europe and in the United States, but okay. in English. I'll share with you an experience that I had back in 1991. If you take into consideration the fact that I'm in my 50s now. In 1991, I, I decided for six months that I was not going to write anything unless it came to me in Yoruba. And so I went through six months of not writing. And at the end of my six months, I actually broke down and wept because I had to accept then, you know, that this was it. I didn't have the competence to produce the literature that had endeared me to a lot of people in the English-speaking world in Yoruba. And that was very painful for me. And it's, the reason, it's one of the reasons, you know, that I have become an apostle of indigenous language uh, promotion in, on the African continent now. So is this perhaps a good point to ask you, Tope, about this concept of English as a killer language? Does that metaphor work for you? I don't see English as a killer language. I think... It goes back to a point that I made earlier about, you know, giving agency to the language rather than to the people who put policies in place. The English language is a very useful tool, and it's a very useful possession for those for whom this is a, a mark of local identity. I don't see how it, it can kill another language, but I suppose that if you have in place a policy that plays up one language and plays down another, then, of course, the person who is doing the killing or, or the, the agency that's doing that killing is, is the policymaker and the policy planner uh, uh, executor, you know, rather than the language itself. That does need to be said because languages don't do anything. It's only the speakers. And if you have English in your repertoire, you're an English user. And so what you do with it has an effect. And if obviously you're um, a nasty transnational corporation that is doing all sorts of nasty things and introducing English or if you're the WTO that's suggesting that you won't get uh, aid money unless you have English in the education system, all these things, 
then yes, that's negative. But then, of course, if you're um, transnational medical group or ONG and you're using English, then English is being used. So, so it doesn't make any sense to talk about killer language or good or bad. It, it's what the people do with it. Mm-hmm. John? I agree entirely with, with what my colleagues are saying here. I mean, I think it's a it's a highly emotive term to refer to to English as a killer language. And as Tope says, it does imply a kind of agency that that no language actually has because it's the it's the policies that are that are to blame. But certainly, there has been language shift in in favour of English, and certainly monolingual ideologies with regard to teaching have sidelined uh, indigenous languages, and this has had negative consequences for them. But again, as as Andy has said, and as, as Toby has said, uh, English has also been appropriated by people all around the world and has been used to combat the iniquities of globalisation, for example, that English is intimately associated with. So English can also be, I mean, it was also the the language of the anti-colonial struggle in the Indian subcontinent. It was the the language of the anti-apartheid struggle. Throughout the 90s, for example, the Zapatistas in Mexico regularly posted their, their statements to the world on the internet in Spanish and in English. So I think English can also be seen as a language of, of expression and reclaiming and, and, and things like that. It's not simply an imposition. And to refer to it as a killer language, I think, simplifies um, what is, in fact, a very complex situation. I think one thing we're all agreed on, John, is that it is indeed a, a complex situation. I found this a really fascinating discussion, and I, I'd just like to thank you all very much for giving us such a genuinely global perspective. Thank you. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.